Okay, so we started a new mimer from last week's Parsha, Parsha's Chaye Sarah, which is called Vayetze Yitzchak Lasuach Basadeh. We started with a bit of an intro about just the verse itself, the context of the verse. Um, did you guys learn the, the Parsha, like yeah. the story of the Parsha? So it falls in that, that he went outside to, to pray. Uh, Yitzchak went out to pray. The Gemara teaches us that that's where the prayer of Mincha comes from. And then, um, he lifted up his eyes, and he saw that camels were coming. Uh, the Kliyakar actually says that we see that Mincha is a very powerful um, prayer because Yitzchak was praying, and then his, he, he was assumingly praying for um, a wife. And then he raised up his eyes, and he, behold, his wife uh, was coming towards him. So, we're, as we said, what? It was that easy. Wait, what is it called? Like, what's the... The mimer is called Oh, you want, me, you want me to help you find it? You know what we used to do? We used to take these and put them in um, the books. Okay. Just mark it. Otherwise, every time you're going to be looking for, okay. for it because there's no pages. Here. Yeah, let me help you find it. If anyone needs help finding it in the book. Okay, no, that's way... That's Hanukkah. The truth is, it's almost Hanukkah. Like, okay, here we go. Oh, there we go. When is um, Rosh Hashanah? I, I think Tuesday. Tuesday. Oh, wow. I think. Does anyone else need help? Like Monday night. Um, twenty. Uh, either either Monday night or Tuesday night. I think Monday night. Um, anyone else need help finding it? You got it. Okay. So we started with an introduction just to what we're going to be going into. As we said, that the verse itself isn't going to be dealt with until the end of the mimer. Uh, understanding what does it mean that Yitzhak went out into the field? We're going to be trying to understand what was he doing? What does lasuach mean? Why did he have to go specifically into the field? Um, why did he have to leave his tent? And the, the Gemara questions this because there's actually halacha that you you ha- you can't you can't pray in an open field. You have to find like a tree. Also, if you're in a room, you don't just like start the Shmonastra in the middle of the room. You find like a corner, you know, so that you have concentration. So why was he praying in the middle of an open field? So we will, we will discuss all of that on the Kabbalistic sort of, you know, internal level of the Torah level. But first we said we have to understand the difference between a Mishnah and a Brisa. So we're going to start now, different topic. Just get into a little bit, first of all, what is a Mishnah, what is a Brisa, and then what's the connection here to our mind, what are you trying to learn? So, you guys familiar with the oral Torah versus the written Torah, right? Um, Moshe received the written Torah and the oral Torah at um, Mount Sinai. He transmitted the oral Torah orally, and it was forbidden to write down, to teach the oral Torah in a written down way. And he transmitted the written Torah in a written way, and it was forbidden to learn the written Torah in an oral way. So there was this very, very clear distinction between the two. And um, this is how it went on for over 1500 years until the time of the second temple and the destruction of the second temple there was a very big um shake up by of the jewish people right even the first when the first temple was destroyed it was a 70 year period and then they came back um but by the time of the second temple first of all the jews in general like by the time that the temple was destroyed there were 24 factions of jews in jerusalem everybody was divided um there were a lot of hellenists at the time and you know we know the whole story of hanukkah that we're coming up to that happened in the time of the second temple that the torah and the jewish way of life started to kind of split up it had always been a very unified taught in a very unified way and suddenly there started to be all these different splits. We know the Judeo-Christians came right after the second temple was destroyed as well. Um, we had the time 
toward the end of the destruction of the second temple called the time of the Zugot. Have you heard of the Zugot? The pairs, the, it used to be that the Jews were, were run either by a king or by a prophet, we had a high priest, and then at the time of the Romans, we had like the Jews who were designated by the Romans to rule. And then we had, after all of this, we had the period of the Zugot, where there were two leaders of the Jewish people who ruled together. And um, the very last of the Zugas, of the five Zugas, this happened over a couple of centuries, were Hillel and Shammai. You've heard of Hillel and Shammai? They're the very famous Zugas. They were the final Zugas. And there was a very big distinction what happened with Hillel and Shammai was that suddenly they disagreed. It used to be that there were two that ruled together. But Hillel and Shammai, there was always kind of one disagreement, one tiny, tiny disagreement in the oral Torah, because you know, when you pass things down orally, it's a miracle that there went more. There was one tiny disagreement about uh, a carbon on Shabbos, one tiny detail, but then four more disagreements were added in the time of Hillel and Shammai, and to the point that Hillel and Shammai actually developed their own individual yeshivas, which had never been the case before. There was the, the group of Hillel, the group of Shammai. This was the beginning of almost like the split in understanding of the, of the oral Torah. And from there we had the destruction of the temple, the moving of the Sanhedrin to Yavne, and then we had this concept called, after Hillel and Shammai, a Nasi. After we had the Zugot, the, the pairs who were ruling the Jews, we had a Nasi. A Nasi was a spiritual and political leader of the Jewish people. Um, so the first Nasi was the son of, was the son of Hillel. It, it, it went by the house of Hillel, because Hillel was from King David, and the kings and the rulers came from King David. So. The first son was Hillel's son, uh, I think his name was Shimon, and then his son was Gamliel, and then his son was Shimon, and then his son was Gamliel. There were like three Shimons and two Gamliels, something like that, because, you know, pass away, name after the father, later after the grandfather. Um, and then we had the, the son of Shimon, I, th I think of Shimon or of Gamliel, I don't remember which one now. Um, Shimon, Gamliel, Shimon. I think the son of Shimon, because I think there were three Shimons, and his name was Rabbi Huda Hanasi. You guys heard of Rabbi Huda Hanasi? Mm -hmm. So, in general, throughout this time of, of the Nisim, there was a lot of um, there was a lot of just political unrest with the Romans and things like that. The temple had been destroyed. And there were no Jews allowed into Jerusalem. Yavne was preserved because of uh, Yochanan ben Zaka. He went and he asked a spe special request to preserve Yavne. That's where all the Torah scholars went. And um, by the time Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi was born, it's, he was actually born on the day that Rabbi Akiva, who was the sage of the time in the previous generation, was murdered by the Romans. He was born that day. And he, um, there's a whole story with him. It, Brits Miller was forbidden at the time of the Romans. And so they used to, if, if they found a child who had a Brits Miller, they would murder, murder the mother and the child. And when Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi was born, they summoned him to Rome, his mother and him, because they wanted to check that he wasn't circumcised. He was born into this very prominent family. And on the way, the mother befriended a Roman woman in one of the inns she was staying in, and the Roman woman allowed her to switch their children um, so that she would bring this non-Jewish child and, and they would see he wasn't circumcised. This child, this non-Jewish child, grew up to be, I think his name was Vespasian, maybe Vespasian, I don't remember his name. He was the ruler of the Romans. He grew up to be the ruler of the Romans, and this baby grew up to be the leader of the Jewish people, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, and they were very close friends. So there was a couple, I guess it was a couple decades, of quiet, relative quiet for the Jews, and that's when Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi and the Sanhedrin at the time made the decision to write down the oral Torah into what we call the Mishnah. Okay, and there are six books of the Mishnah where um, 
Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi had to choose from thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of little, what were called notes that had been like jotted down. You were allowed to write down the oral Torah for yourself, but not for public kind of teaching. So there were ton, thousands and thousands of these little notes that had been compiled over the generations from the Tanaim, and he um, compiled what we call the Mishnah. So when, we learn, when you guys learn Gemara, the Gemara is an explanation of the Mishnah. The Mishnah was written extremely cryptically because there was so much that had to be put in there. There's nothing extra put in the Mishnah and then anything that wasn't understood was discussed later. Um, and, and that's where the Talmud comes in. So a Mishnah is what was written by Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi and compiled officially into the books of the Oral Torah. Then we have something called a Brisa. You'll also see Brisa's being brought in the Talmud. A Brisa means a note, a concept a story, any sort of transmission of the oral Torah that had been left out of the Mishnah. Rabbi Yehuda Nasi wasn't able to include every single story and insight that had been passed down from the time of Moses into the Torah, into the Mishnah. Anything that had been left out was still kept. People still had it, but it wasn't in the Mishnah, and it's called a brisa. Brisa, the word bar, Bez Resh in Aramaic, means outside. So a brisa is anything that was left outside of the Mishnah, but is still a transmission of the oral Torah. So many times you'll have in the, in the Gemara that they'll bring a Mishnah and then say, oh, but there's a brisa that says this and this, that, that disagrees, and then they'll have a whole argument and discussion about that. So, so when we still speak about a Mishnah and a brisa, the Mishnahs are the ones that had cle- were clear and concise, and concise and all-inclusive enough to be included into the Mishnah, because Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi had to include as much as he possibly could. So if a concept was just like, a, a prat, what's called like one detail that didn't encompass the whole point, it was left out. But if it was a detail that encompassed many, po- encompassed many points, that was the Mishnah. So that's a Mishnah and a Brisa. Okay, that clear with that little history? Yeah. So when it comes to Tyra, okay, we know that Tyra is the wisdom of Hashem that's been transmitted directly from Hashem to Misha all the way down to us. Within the Torah, as within anything, when we speak about Hashem and when we speak about the Jewish people, when we speak about the Torah, there are many, there are levels, okay? There are levels of Torah. When we speak about levels, we mean the higher up you go, the more godly revelation. The more down you go, the less godly revelation, okay? Just like with the soul. Within the soul, there are levels. The higher up you go, the more it's revealed to be one with God. The more down you go, the less so. Um, We see that within the world as well. So we have almost like these four categories of Tyra. Obviously, Tyra is one. But when it comes to levels, the first most godly revealed aspect of the Tyra, can anyone guess what that would be? Pardon? Beyond the Chumash. What's When have we been given an aspect of Tyra? Tanakh would, would fall kind of like into the Chumash. The, the Tanakh and the Chumash would be the written Tyra. What is a holier aspect of Tyra than that? Explanations? Hmm? Sod? Hmm? No. Well, what did we get when we got the tire? What did we get? We got the tire, right? Moshe came so? down and he wrote down the tire. What did we get before Moshe came and wrote down the 13 scrolls, the 10 commandments, the luchot, right? The luchot were, well, the first luchot were, were, were created and written by Hashem himself. The second luchot were created by Hashem and then written and carved by Moshe. And it's the the significance of the Ruchot is that they were absolutely revealed godliness in this world. 
So we, we've learned a little bit about Keser, Hashem as he is beyond all of the worlds. So according to Hasidus, the Luchas was a representation of Keser, of Hashem's infinity as it transcends worlds in this world. Okay? Um, it was the most revealed godliness with, of the Torah that's ever existed. And the significance of the fact that the letters were carved into the Luchot. Right? The, the closer you get to the revelation of Hashem, the closer you get to his unity. Right? So when it came to the Luchot, the, the, the words of the Ten Commandments were engraved and carved into the stone itself. They were one thing. They weren't two separate things. And so it's like representing this ultimate unity and infinity of Hashem and of Hashem's wisdom as it came down into this world. So that would be what we call the most innermost part of the Torah. And in general, Chassidus speaks about this idea that there's a front and back to the Torah. There's a face and the back of the Torah. The face means where you see the most light, where you see the most revelation, the back where you see the least. So this would be the ultimate sort of face, face of the Torah, would be the Luchais, right? What would be the next level? As you said, the next level would be the written Torah. As Moshe received it from Hashem and wrote it down, he wrote down 13 Torah scrolls, 12, each tribe got one, and then one was kept in the, the Ark along with the Luchot. And um, if there were ever, you know, they, if there were ever questions about how to copy the text, they would actually go back to the original one of Moshe and check. And um, it's this incredible thing that the written Torah has remained, um, has remained the same. We've written it the same way thousands of years later. I think that there are nine letters that are disputed. Wow. Nine out of how many letters are there in the Torah? Six hundred thousand? No, 000, right? I think so. Something like that. So, I think that included. Yeah. Including right? um, the white letters, and which is the little, the spaces. So I think there might be like 300,000 actual letters then. It's yeah, possible. Sure. Something like that, right? That sounds a little bit more accurate. So nine out of 300,000. Um, and, and this is because there was this real, real system put in place about how to transmit the, how to transmit the written Torah, how to write it down. And then every couple of Decades, they would actually gather together and compare the Sifri Torah and compare the versions and make sure that all the mistakes had been edited out. And that's why even we found passages of Torah from 2,000 years ago, and they are exactly the same as what we have now. It's an incredible thing. So, so that's what the written Torah, and as we know, you're not allowed to actually learn the written Torah orally. Um, you have to learn it from, from the Sefer. But then we have, um, we have the oral Torah, right? That's the next level. So the deepest level is, is the Luchais, right? You looked at the Luchais, you saw God. You saw God himself within the Luchais. Totally, you saw God's unity, God's infinity. It didn't take too much effort. The next level is the written Torah. And that's why well, we have a safer Torah, which to sort of represents the, the written Torah, which also represents a real, holy, revealed level of God. We, when we look into the written Torah don't see God, right? Because we don't have Ruch HaKodesh. But somebody with Ruch HaKodesh, if they look into the, the written Torah, they'll be able to see godliness emanating from, from there, from, from the knowledge there. And that's why in Sefer Torah, we, we have very, very specific standards when it comes to it and, and with the Tanakh, the Tanakh as well. Uh, which, who, who has this Ruch HaKodesh? Like... Today? <laughs> I'm not sure. But throughout history, um, there were certain people who were given the gift of Ruach HaKodesh. And um, that's why we spoke about that story on Thursday about the Rebbe Rashab, who did have Ruach HaKodesh, that he sent a, a question in Torah to his student because he wanted to know, is this something that's able to be understood with your mind, or can I only understand it because I see it? 
because I have Ruach HaKodesh. And then he was able to see, no, this is something that's able to be understood. Um, what we're going to be seeing here is the downside of having that Ruach HaKodesh, actually, when it comes to Torah learning. So, but even without Ruach HaKodesh, okay, when we're learning written Torah, we feel more connected to it. Also, just on a practical level, it's less difficult to understand, right? The Tanakh, I mean, it's difficult, but it's less difficult than, for example, a Gemara. There's less fighting and back and forth and arguing. Um, so but then... The oral Torah appears from the, from the written Torah. Like, yes, there are yes. so many unclearness and there's so much like, um, shadows in the, in the written Torah. That's why we have the oral Torah. Right, so it's like, for sure. So in a way, it's clarifying. Yeah. 100%. It, 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 just as the Torah, so to speak, is clarifying the Luchot. The Luchot include the whole Torah within them. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole, there's this whole thing my mom loves to do. When, um, last year, there were a few minor girls in my house, and she, like, cornered them and taught them this whole thing about... <laughs> she's like, I'm going to give you a Dvar Torah for Shabbos. She taught them about how the Luchais, um, there's two sections. There's, the, there's those between us and God and between us and us, and then how they're actually the same and, and how they all come back to the, the first letter, which is the Aleph, Anochi, Hashem. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole Torah is included within the Luchot, and then it's clarified by the written Torah, which is then clarified by the oral Torah, definitely. So it's more vague. It's more vague, which means you need more, so to speak, Ruch HaKodesh people to just see it yourself. The, the Yidin used to be able, back in the day, many, 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 many years ago, they would be able to open up a, a written Torah and just know what it was saying. They would be able to see what it was saying, uh, like the generation of the Midbar. As we've gotten less and less in tune with that, we've needed more and more explanations. That's the oral Torah, and then to the point that the oral Torah had to be written down. And then within the oral Torah, which is the third and fourth level, we have these two levels of Mishnah and Brisa. So the Mishnah is, is high enough, reveals enough godliness that it was included within the Mishnah. So it's got some sort of light still there, much less than the written Torah, much less than the Luchot. When we say light, again, somebody with Ruach HaKodesh, when he opens it up, sees God, okay? As opposed to um, the Mishnah, it's harder. You open up the Mishnah, there's less there. It's more just details, 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 less uh, revelation, so to speak. And the Brisa is even more detailed. It's so detailed that it wasn't even included in the Mishnah because it wasn't all-encompassing of a concept enough to go in. So it's considered to be the lowest level of Torah, and when we say the lowest level of Torah, we don't mean less important, we mean less revealed godliness. Even somebody with, with this connection with godliness and this insight, when he looks at a Brisa, it's very hard to, you know? And, and it is on a subtle level, the truth with ourselves as well, that when we learn Chumash and when we learn the Tanakh, there's a certain um, connection to God there. What I mean by that is that God is mentioned so much, and it's always going back to the Jewish people and to God and to the, the, the land of Eretz Yisrael. When you start to learn a, a Gemara, you can learn and learn and learn about an ox and a cow and a man and a thief for so long. It's like, wait, where's, where's God here? Where's the Jewish people here? It's like, just on a practical level for ourselves, it's, it's harder to see the light there. So, so we do see that in, in some version within ourselves as well. So when it comes to these four levels and these four... Yes? Uh, so I just have two quick questions. Um, before, when you were talking about the oral and written Torah, and like um, how before, like you couldn't before the oral Torah was written down, how you couldn't learn it, like written and everything. Um, did you maybe I misheard you? Did you say you, they learned it together? Like so, when people learn like the weekly proportion, they'd also learn like the Gemara, the Tom, the oral that translates. So, like so what I was connection. saying was something different. It was that that at 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 some point, people used to have such a 
such a knowledge and such an insight mm-hmm. as well and such a sensitivity to God that when they opened up a Torah, oh. they saw all of the messages that that, that verse, that letter was okay. giving over, right? Okay. Now we just see the letter. <laughs> so that's one thing. When it comes to the oral and the written Torah, they were learning both. Yes, they were, burning, they were learning both. Yeah. The method was different. They had books. The books that they had were the Tanakh. Mm-hmm. And then they had teachers and they had smicha and they had a very, very rigorous process where you would teach the oral Torah to the next generation and there were all these different laws you had to be in Israel you had to be like there were all these different parameters to be able to make sure that we were passing on the oral Torah correctly but it was also something that you didn't have to be a scholar to get smicha to know because it was something that we lived we live the oral Torah right just so <laughs> Judaism as we know it is oral Torah like the tzitzis and all of these things you grow up you live it you know it Um, But this did at some point start to get lost and there started to be arguments and there were literally two schools, Hillel and Shammai, and there were these opinions. So it's like, can I eat at my friend who follows Shammai? Maybe he needs to keep different pots for me. It was like this dangerous sort of splitting. Um, But that's, yeah, people did learn them both at the same time. Okay, and then my other question was like, so before like there started to be arguments and Hillel and Shammai weren't agreeing and like whatever, like before they ever wrote it down, because now a lot of times, like, in the oral tradition, you'll see there's, like, a disagreement, and sometimes they don't come to a conclusion. So, like, before, like, I'm assuming there weren't these arguments, and, like, it was, like, the oral tradition, like, was learned, not differently, but it was, like, a bit different. Like, now, yeah. then it started to get lost, and then they had to write it down. Like, is that true? Yeah, so you just reminded me of, of one part of the story I didn't share, that, that from Hillel and Shammai, there did start to be these disagreements beforehand. It wasn't really... Mm-hmm. Um, it was more like, this is what we know. Um, but then, um, by the time of the Nisim, when they were in Yavne, they took three years, they said, okay, we have to unify the Jewish people. We're going to argue out these differences. We're going to debate them out. And for three years, they argued back and forth and back and forth. Who is right? So we can come to, this is, how, this is where we stand. And after three years, a voice came out from heaven and said the famous words, Elo ve'elo divrei Elohim chayim. These and these are the words of the living God. Both are right. Both are right. And that was right before the Mishnah was written down. Mm-hmm. And um, you'll have Mishnahs and you'll have Bryces that totally disagree with each other. Completely. That's where the Gemara comes in. Um, but but there's, this new, there's this perspective we have from then, which is even when we're disagreeing, it's not, oh, this, let's find out which is actually Torah. Mm-hmm. These are both Torah. Let's find out which one's actually practical, applicable, halacha for now, for mm-hmm. today. So that's where that shift came in as well. Um, okay. Are you guys ready to go inside? Any, any questions, comments, what I said? We have these four levels, four levels of Torah, different levels of godliness. The Bryce is considered the least amount of revelation, the most amount of what I like to call nitty-gritty details, okay? I'm going to use that word a lot, and with my accent it's funny, but... The nitty-gritty, you guys say nitty-gritty, right? Um, the details that are so mundane that seem so far off from this enlightened Torah truth, right? Which, if you open up a Gemara, and especially when you see the Bryce's brought in, that's what it is. It's like, this person's sheep, and this person's ox, and this person's... And it's like, okay, where, where is Torah? Where is Judaism, right? Um, what we're going to be understanding is actually the advantage of the lowest levels and the advantage of having less enlightenment when it comes to Torah learning. Which is so interesting, because you would think the opposite. What do you mean, you would think the opposite? Like, you would think, like, why would there be advantages in not seeing the light, you know? Right. 
Yeah. Hasidus takes like the assumption, which is, you know, more is better almost. More light is better and flips it. Less, you know, darkness, challenge, oh, yeah. tests. And so here it comes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going gonna, it's gonna to happen all throughout. Every topic we learn is going to flip it on its head. Um, so, yeah, we're going to be seeing the, adv- the disadvantage of enlightenment in Torah learning, the advantage of having, as re- remember, the, the mashal from the Rebbe of groping in the darkness and having to touch our way and feel our way through the room to get to the other side. Okay, so let's go inside. We read that um, last week. Yitzchak went out into the field, if not Erev, before evening. He lifted up his eyes, and he saw, behold, there were camels approaching, which was Eliezer and Rivka. To be able to explain this, and you should know that this pasuk is explained by many, many different mafarshim, because there are quite a few questions here. Um, why was Yitzchak going out? What does lasuach mean? There are many, many translations of lasuach. Why did he pray in the field? Why before evening? There are all different explanations. So the Rebbe, El Trebi is saying, before I bring my explanation, before we bring Hasidus' explanation of this verse, we first need to understand, Lavarza to explain this, Tehine yesh mishnah v'vraisa. Behold, we have a mishnah and we have a braisa. Ubraisa, what is a braisa? Perush ha-mishnah. The explanation of the Mishnah, as Malki was saying, that each level explains the level above it. So the, mis- the Mishnah was written in a very inclusive, almost uh, cryptic sort of way. And then the Bryce's explain it. Ki ha-Mishnah hu ha-Klal. The Mishnah is the general concept. The whole oral Torah is included in a general way within the Mishnah. The Bryce hi ha-Prat shel ha-Mishnah. The Bryce are the details of the Mishnah. And there is a rule that says all of the information in the klal is made up of all of its details. The information of a general teaching comprises no more than the sum of all its details. So let's see here quickly. The word Mishnah comes from the word shinun, learning. It says vishinantam. You should teach these words of Torah to your children. The Mishnah is the main compilation of the laws of the Torah as they were passed down orally from generation to generation. The Mishnah was compiled by Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi and his compar- uh, with his contemporaries and students toward the end of the time of the second Beis HaMikdash. Since one of the goals of the Mishnah was to be memorized and recited by heart, only the most essential teachings of the laws of the Torah were compiled in the text of the Mishnah. Many of the p- details pertaining to these laws and their reasonings were left out of the text and taught separately under the name of Brisa, okay? Which means outside. Those bar outside, those were left outside of the text of the Mishnah. So the Mishnah is the general and the Brises are the details that make up that general Mishnah. So we would think, right? As Aurea says, we would think, that the Brisa is a lower level than the Mishnah. It's only there to explain the Mishnah. It's only the, the smallest details. Because we know that it descended lower. So in God's wisdom, as God's wisdom descended through the Lochot, through the written Torah, it then descended through the Mishnah and all the way down to the Brisa. So we would think that the Brisa is the lowest thing. Aval, however, Ha'anetu, the truth is, Shehabraisa Gavoa Yoter. That the Brisa is actually higher. Why? Sof ma'aseh b'machshava t'chila. 
We say this, Sof Maaseh, the Machshavat Chila. Where do we say that? In the Chadodi. Sof Maaseh, the Machshavat Chila, right? The last action is the first thought. Okay, so what does this mean? This is a, this is a term, this is a, a vart. Uh, the Arizal composed. Wait, did the Arizal compose the Chadodi? No one. No. Yeah? No. Alkabets, you're right. Also from Tzfak, though, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So um, he, so so this verse, this this concept is a Zoharic idea that's very often used in Hasidus. That the the fir- the last action is the first thought, and so we're gonna th- we're gonna explain this now in in the mimer and just a little bit of context when we throw out this idea. Okay, actually, you think the brisa is lower, but it's actually higher, right? Because the lowest thing is the highest thing. We're now going to be understanding the, what we call the haskala. How do we say? The logic, even. Just the logic behind that idea. Okay? Because it needs to make sense. Okay? If it doesn't make sense, tell me. I'll repeat it again. Because chassidus needs to make sense. Okay? So when we say the price is higher than the Mishnah, sounds nice. Right? When we say, uh, you know, when God descends to the lowest thing and actually the blackness is the highest thing, it sounds nice. What's the logic there? Okay, so that's what we're going to try and understand here. So when we say the last action is the first thought, what does that mean? So Chassidus brings an example for this idea of this verse. That if somebody has a dream, okay, a dream, not a, like not a dream when they're sleeping. He has, a, he has a, a goal, a dream. He wants his dream house, okay, she wants her dream house. And she has the image of the house in her mind, exactly how it looks, the finished product, right? It's going to be in this location. It's going to be painted these colors. It's going to be this many rooms. It's going to have this type of furniture, this type of lighting, right? The whole picture they have in their mind. That's their first thought, my dream house. That's the first thing of the whole process that comes up, the thought, the vision of their dream house. Then they have to start breaking up that dream apart. They have to raise money to be able to buy the land. They have to find the land. They have to purchase it. They have to dig. They have to put the foundations. They have to build it up. They have to choose the colors. They have to choose the furniture. All of those details in that whole process until finally, what's the last thing? They're sitting, drinking a coffee, in the chair, in their dream house that they envisioned all the way at the beginning. The last action is the first thought. The first thought was the vision of the perfect finished product of the house. The last action is me sitting in the finished product of the house, right? Which was the initial intent all along. But then we have all of these processes in between, which are extremely important, right? If you don't have a foundation in your home, you don't get to sip your coffee in your dream home, right? If you don't hire a contractor, if you don't um, go and paint it and choose the colors and all of these things, they're very, very, very important. Um, but the most important thing at the end of the day is you sitting in your house drinking your coffee, right? So when we say that the lowest thing is actually the highest thing, when we say that the last action is the first thought, God had a first thought. What was God's first thought? I want a home in this world that looks a world that looks just as it looks with trees, with people, and with the sky, with the grass, and the animals, this world as it looks, God's initial thought was the world is, so think of your dream house, this world, this globe, okay, this, not only this planet, but this universe, 
is God's, was God's initial dream and vision for his home. And what did he want to be doing? We want to be sitting and relaxing on our terrace in our dream home, right? What did God want to be doing in this world? He wanted to be revealed and present and welcome in this world as he envisioned it. That was his first thought. His first thought. And if you've heard that God had a desire for a dear batachtonim, right? God's desire was a dwelling place in the lowest world, in this world, okay? That was his first thought. Before anything else, before Atsilas, before angels, before souls, Okay, souls maybe is debatable, um, but before Seder Ishtalshtus, before Parsas, all these things that we've been learning. This was the first thought. Then, okay, we need to make this happen. So we're going to have the world of Tohu. We're going to have all of these Tzimtzumim. We're going to have light. We're going to have vessels. We're going to have levels. We're going to have angels. We're going to have creations. Until, until, until we have this world, as it looks, right? The six days of creation. Until we have people, until we have the Jewish nation as they become born, until we have the mitzvahs, until we have the Torah, so that the world can look the way it looks, we can live the way God wanted us to live, and God can find a home in this world. That's the last thing that happens. That's the final thing, right? When Mashiach comes, that's the final thing. But that's the most important thing. That's the first thought. Meaning, when Mashiach comes, that's ultimately making a Dear That's the ultimate completion of the Dear Tainim. So we're starting that process, we're, we're in that process already, and we have been given that job, each and every one of us, to make a Dear Tainim. And we can, have you heard, like, you can have almost like a private Mashiach, a personal Mashiach, where your life is lived in a way of Dear Tainim, but then when it's a collective experience, that's Mashiach. So the final collective experience where the whole world knows God and God is welcome in every corner of the world, that's Mashiach. That's the final, final action. It's the lowest thing. It's the end result, right? It's after Atzillus and it's after Bria and it's after all of these things. But it was the first thought. So when we say that the lowest thing is actually the highest, it's because it, it's actually the first thought. But in order to go from your initial thought and vision all the way to the end result... You're going to have to have all these levels that look to be higher and look to be more important, right? If you ask somebody, what's more important, the foundations of the house or your, or, or your sunbed where you imagine yourself sitting and drinking your pina colada in your dream house, they would say, no, the foundations are more important. But actually, the most important thing is you sitting in that sunbed because that was the whole reason that the whole house was built in the first place. It's the whole reason why there are foundations in the first place. So when we say... What's higher? Atsilas. What's higher? Angels or people. It's like, well, on a spiritual level, the angels are more enlightened. They're more in touch with God. They're closer. But we're higher because we're closer to the final goal. Okay? So whenever we, we use this idea that actually the lowest thing is the highest thing because it's getting closer and closer and closer to the vision and to the dream that was the initial thought. And the initial thought is the highest thing. That initial desire for, that God had to have a dwelling place in this world is higher than anything else because that's the first, so to speak, expression of God outward. And then from there, we have all of the levels of light and they're higher and they're lower and Tzimtzumim and the worlds with all of their hierarchies. But the highest, highest, highest thing is God's desire. And as we've discussed before, God's desire, God's pleasure is one with him. And God, as he is one with himself, that's the highest you can get. So that started off there. God's desire, God's dream, as it was one with him. It's the highest, highest thing. And then we have all of this, this descends in an order of, so to speak, importance. 
going from the thing that's closest to God's light to the thing that's furthest away. But the thing that's ultimately the furthest, furthest away from God's light, that's the tachlit, that's the purpose, that's the whole reason why all of the other things exist in the first place. So this is kind of what the mimer is going to be telling us and breaking it down into details, this message. We're going to see this again throughout the year as well. But when we see this verse, that's what it means. The last action was the first thought. And the, and the altar is going to bring examples here for this idea. So we'll see this now um, inside for a minute and we'll continue with it tomorrow. Actually, before we go inside, any questions or comments on what I just said? Okay, so let's read for two minutes and then we'll, we'll continue with this idea tomorrow. So since only through the knowledge of the details of the mitzvahs explained in the b'risa are we able to actually fulfill them, it comes out that there is an advantage in the b'risa over the Mishnah. So we're going to actually explain why there's an advantage to the b'risa over the Mishnah. Why? Because the end, the last action is the first thought. For us to practically do a mitzvah in this physical world with our limited capabilities, we need the b'risas. So Mishnah is the oral Torah as it was compiled by Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi into um, what we call the six orders of the Mishnah. So it's the, written to- it's the oral Torah as it was written down, as it generally encompasses all of, encompasses all of the mitzvahs. And we're, the, the Mimer is actually going to bring examples for Mishnahs and examples for Brises to show us the difference. A Brises is the details of those mitzvahs that are such small details that they were actually left out. But at the end of the day, those tiny, tiny details that we're taught in the Brises teach us practically on a day-to-day level how to serve God, which was his initial intent all the way at the beginning. Okay? So this, this idea, we're going we're gonna to map it out as we, as we continue inside. So Dehine, we see, Hatayra Nishtal Shala Lamata. So which page? Oh, let me find it for you because there are unfortunately no page. Oh, 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 you don't have the actual, right here. Right here. You got it. The Torah descended down even to the point that it speaks about lies. Okay, what does this mean? We'll end with this point. The Torah starts off with God and his truth in his, in his wisdom, in his goodness, one with God. And it descends throughout all the world, and it descends within even this world in different levels, the Luchot, the written Torah, the oral Torah, to the point that when we learn the oral Torah, we start to learn about all these scenarios where one person is lying and one person is telling the truth. And so the example that's brought is from the Gemara, Kagan for the example in the Gemara, Ze Omer Ani Matzisa. This person, two people are in a shul, I think it was, and they find a talus, they find a garment, and they both hold on to it. And one person says, it's mine. And the other person says, no, it's actually mine, which means that one of them is lying. I think the answer that the Gemara gives her is that you have to like, split it in half and just give it because you just, this is just word of mouth. You don't have any proof, so just split it in half. Each one gets half of the garment. But this clearly means that there's somebody telling the truth, there's somebody lying. And we're learning about this in the Torah. And we don't say every time we learn in the Torah a not pleasant situation where somebody's not acting right, etc., that that's not Torah. That's still Torah. It's Torah as it's teaching itself to us. It's God's wisdom as it's expressing itself through a scenario where somebody's telling the truth and where somebody's lying. Which means that the Torah is descended down very, very low. Within the Luchot, we don't have anybody lying. We have just enlightenment. We just have God serve God in this way and that way, etc. When it comes down to the details, we can spend weeks learning about a scenario about a very, very bad person, about a very, very difficult situation. And that's because the Torah descended down here. So we'll continue. I know, sorry, it's 
10.15, but we'll, we'll continue with this idea tomorrow and elaborate on it. And the Altar is going to bring an example for a Mishnah and an example for a Brisa so we can actually see how the Mishnah is the general mitzvah as it was transmitted orally throughout the generations. Here's the general mitzvah. The Brises are the details of how to practically apply that mitzvah in our day-to-day life. You would think that those details, because they start to deal with this person is lying, this person is telling the truth, you would think that these are the furthest away from the truth of God and the least important. But the argument of this mamre is actually that they're the most important thing because of sofma seba machshavat pila. The final action was the first intention. Okay? So we'll continue with that. Um, we'll continue with that tomorrow. Okay. Have a good.